Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director, and today we are talking about Jessie Ware and her new album, That Feels Good. She is what's known as a 2020s triple threat. She's a singer, author, and podcaster. She's a balladeer. She's a disco queen. She hosts a celebrity podcast with her mother called Table Manners. She's put out a cookbook. She has a children's clothing line. She's a mother of three, and she just put out one of the best disco revival albums of the last few years. And joining me to talk about it all uh, is Pitchfork contributing writer and disco queen herself, Julianne Escobedo Shepard. Julianne, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. I appreciate the disco queen moniker. Thank you. You're welcome. I'd say your reputation precedes yourself. So <laughs> I've been known to frequent the club. <laughs> yeah, I know you. You and Pooja are the are like the club queens, and I'm just sort of the <laughs> the couch potato. But I'm glad you're here because we're going to talk about an album that is meant for the club, or at least meant for a club from a certain era. So yeah, but you know, Jessie Ware, she's been around yeah. um, probably since like the early 2000s. I want to ask you, like, where were you when you first heard Jessie Ware, when you first sort of heard her name come onto the scene? Because she was really sort of involved in club music at the time, but a totally different kind of music. Yeah. So the first time I ever heard of Jessie Ware was her very first vocal, like, released single. She was on a track called Nervous with Subtract. Yeah. And... That was kind of like the height of like the UK bass scene mm-hmm. kind of coming up. Strangers meet What was remarkable about that is that she was kind of one of the first, if not the first, diva vocalists that came into that scene and really rejuvenated it and kind of connected it with earlier dance musics. I mean, it was kind of the tail end of like UK Funky, which was also focused on diva-ish vocals. And so like her and uh, Katie B sort of emerged around the same time. So I really thought that her career was going to go in that direction more. And as we know, it did not entirely go in a straight line after that. A lot of what the record labels were telling her, a lot of like sort of like the men around her were saying like, oh, you could be the next Adele. Like your yeah. voice is so good. Like we we want to make you the next Adele. And, and she kind of like, you know, uh, demurred and, and didn't really want to do that. Yeah. And I think one of the actually the earliest examples of you can get an idea of like where her heart really was and and something that kind of connects to where she would go. She did this cover of Bobby Caldwell's Quiet Storm classic, What You Won't Do for Love. Yeah. And you can kind of hear how much she loves sort of soul and classic R&B 
And her version of it, which I think was put out in like the early 2010s, it was small, it was like compressed, but it was cool. It sounded like very cool, very hip, very minimal. I guess you wonder where I've been. It's so funny to hear like her journey from that to this record. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, the underlying element to all of this from even from that early subtract single to now is that she has always had this really, you know, she came out of the club scene. She was a raver. I think she met her husband at a rave, which like bless love. <laughs> Love will find you wherever you are. You can find especially <laughs> in the corner of Brigade. Yeah. <laughs> But she's always had this abiding love of soul and like real, like deep. She goes deep. You can tell that she has studied the greats and Mm -hmm. it's followed her even when she was sort of going in the more pop direction. Right. You know, it's one of her first like breakout songs is this song Wildest Moments, Mm -hmm. um, which is this kind of down tempo R&B pop thing. It reminded a lot of people, reminded me of like Charlie XCX. You could hear like Rihanna singing it yeah. in a way. Just have that like millennial pop sound to her. And she really focused on that. And then like what what happened after Wildest Moments? Can you sort of take us through sort of what happened with her in the 10s? So Wildest Moments kind of broke her out. She became yeah. a star. She's not like on Beyonce levels, but she became a, a star where she toured around the world and, you know, was playing festivals. And like, I think in that era, I saw her at Lollapalooza and Mm -hmm. really taking her sound into like the pop sphere. I think, you know, after after she left sort of like the disclosure subtract Joker scene of UK bass music, I think she was just on her way to become a pop star. Right. But but just sort of a more, she's always had a little bit more of a sophisticated pop element to her. Yeah. There's always been a little bit of something polite, something a little more, yeah, just buttoned up. Yeah. She, I think she's always been a little bit wise beyond her years yes. when it came to production and songs. Yes. She's always been, you know, she's never been the pop star. Like, you know, you can align some of her music with Charlie XCX, but you can't see them doing the same types of things like she's never gonna go buck wild and like she's not the wild gal at the party she is very mature in her delivery and very thoughtful in her choices even as a live performer she's often been very like sophisticated in that way that's always sort of reminded me of like 80s ladies there are a lot of like tina marie parallels but that I wouldn't call her buttoned up necessarily because you know especially on this album you can tell she loves a good time and she nothing mm-hmm. makes her happier than singing dance party music well, like the way she presents sex in pop music it's what she doesn't say is what makes it sexy 
You know what I mean? Right, right, right. I, I wanted to bring it back to, so her 2017 album, Glass House, mm-hmm. was something she recorded, like, you know, shortly after giving birth to her daughter. And it's a, it was a very personal album, too. Um, but, but she certainly left some of the dance floor behind on that album. Yeah. And when she was doing this performance at Coachella in 2018, she was just up on stage and and she noticed that it was tumbleweeds up there, that people weren't really, you know, feeling it. She was 33. She was singing about motherhood. And, you know, her her mom was there uh, with her. And her mom, this is a quote from an, from an article, from an interview that she gave. And her mom was like, darling, you should quit music. You should quit. Yeah. It's like the kind of thing where it's like if your mom is telling you that, if you have the kind of mom who is encouraging, you're like, oh, my God, like, I need to reassess my entire life. <laughs> right. So I think and that was about the time that they started their podcast, right? They started their podcast, Table Manners, at the end of 2017. And basically, okay. her mother, Lenny, is a very good cook. And they obviously have a very close-knit family. And they loved sitting around and eating. And then they just started talking about it and having people over. The con- The original concept was for Jessie would invite one of her friends over. They would cook together and talk about it. But then Lenny became the star because she is very much like funny and interesting and mm-hmm. eventually not immediately but within I think a year it became wildly wildly popular and so like she had this whole other career that she could have focused on so if she wanted to quit music she could have but she didn't but she did not thankfully <laughs> I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. She did this song Overtime mm-hmm. in 2018, which it, it almost just cleared the table and got really got back to what she was doing. Right. It's a single. Um, and then it ended up on sort of like the bonus track on What's Your Pleasure, her 2020 album. And it gained her like an entirely different new audience. Do you remember hearing Overtime or do you remember hearing like the other first lead up single Spotlight? Like Those were like important songs. I think particularly Spotlight sort of signaled that disco as as a concept or like the dance floor as a concept was coming back into the charts and that it wasn't going to mm-hmm. be the quote unquote EDM that we had been subject to for so many years for better Mm -hmm. and for worse and with spotlight she kind of brought some of that flavor to it to pop music which i felt was like really welcome
there was this sophistication element to it, but it had like a beat and it started to really bring back the feel and the vibe of like 70s and 80s disco. Yes. And it's felt refreshing in a way. There was something so freeing and liberating about hearing this yeah. song, not only channel that era, but also have it be such a immaculately composed song right like there are elements of this song that i think like dua lipa ripped off on levitating and i'm like you do not do this as well as jesse ware did it on spotlight two years ago right because like there is this effortlessness that she has and and you can sort of hear that on spotlight and you can hear that all through what's your pleasure that there is this absolute free like airy not even attached to any sort of surface it's like she just floats through these songs yeah yeah i think that's the big paradox of jesse ware is that she is very very studied and she's very intentional and precise about like her song choices about even like how she puts down her vocals but she never sounds like that like so she never sounds like the academic daft punk approach even though she may be approaching the music in the same with the same seriousness she sounds like someone who's been to a club (laughs) you know and this album i just keep imagining myself like spinning around under a disco ball like totally with you know hair flying and that's that's the feeling that she is able to convey and I don't even know how she does it other than she feels very very natural on this like she's not fitting in her style into a predetermined disco formula that will go well on the charts. She's just like, oh, this is my pocket and I'm going to sit in it. Julian, you reviewed this record for Pitchfork.com and you've been living with this record for a minute here. Like, just set the table. Like, what are we in for on this record? Like, what's different about this record than What's Your Pleasure or anything in the past? And like, and what is the sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts of what's going on here? I like that you said set the table because uh, it's a food metaphor. And also there are several food metaphors for sex on this album. Mm -hmm. With What's Your Pleasure, she obviously went into, as established, like the sort of disco zone. And that was very, to me, it was really more marauder-y, synthy. With that feels good, which I like to think of as her kind of speaking to the music that she's making. She worked with Stuart Price, uh, also known as Jacques Lucant, who has produced a lot of albums, but has worked in sort of the disco of, if you will, for a while. He produced Madonna's Confessions on a Dance Floor, most notably, and with James Ford, who is of Simeon Mobile Disco. So you've got a lot of the sort of disco-centric folks there. But the live instrumentation both differentiates this album from What's Your Pleasure, 
by just being live. It also finds this like pocket and groove that is completely undeniable that she sounds so fully happy, ecstatic even to be in. And it suits her voice perfectly. But also it lends the album this feel of like you're in a vintage record store and you've found like a 1973 all all instrumentation disco album that no one's ever heard of like it is that true to that sound and it's great I think yeah one of my little favorite moments it's just in a deep album cut it's on the final song on the album which is called these lips if you And there's just this syncopation that Jesse does with the horn section. And it is so owing to 70s soul and funk. And it's the kind of thing that you only get after you've studied that for a really long time. You know what I mean? Like, it's something where you're like, I know what they do. I know how to write this chart. I know how to write this little musical moment here. And let's bring it from the page and out of the speakers. And it's like... So much of music today is feels like very like vibes oriented or just sort of like, let's just jam in the studio and see yeah. what comes out. But this is not sort of a vibes chill record. No. This is kind of like an in your face record, right? Yeah, she's really making the case for song structure. It is yeah. wild. There's multiple movements. There's a lot of chanting on this album. Yes. <laughs> and the title track, she had all of her friends whisper or say like, that feels good. That feels good. That feels good <laughs> at the that beginning. And so you, it opens with all these voices saying that feels good. That you would never know who they are, but they are people like Kylie Minogue and Rojan Murphy, one of my favorite comedic actors, Jamie Demetrio. Yes. But yeah, that's such a really cool thing. But so this is like a disco record. We've talked about this, but like where does Jesse Ware slot into sort of the disco revival? It's interesting because we have Dua Lipa, who is very much pop oriented and like her disco revival Mm -hmm. is disco that you could play on like 50 different types of pop format radio. Then you have Lizzo, which is really pretty fealty to the disco sound, but like what she's talking about are very modern contemporary concerns. I would put her sort of in the same lane as Beyonce where she has this really strong respect to it and she has a lot of fealty to the genre is that wild to say or (laughs) no I don't think so but I also think that like what this album is and sort of what this album is focused on and something you wrote about is is a lot about sort of like liberation both like yes in your body in your spirit when you're alone or when you're out at the club, right? And that's a lot of what sort of Beyonce talked about in Renaissance. And I think Beyonce's Renaissance sort of was grouped into a more specific box and was very much more political than I think Jesse Ware's that exclamation point feels good exclamation point (laughs) tends to be. But I think they both have the same aim about liberation, you know? Like the second song, Free Yourself, right? And that was like a single. 
that pretty much is like a prototypical find freedom under the mirror ball right, yeah. song, right? Yeah. So, you know, in the 70s, there were queer anthems that were specific queer anthems. Mm-hmm. And then there were queer anthems that became queer anthems because of the the feeling that they conveyed. And I think that this kind of falls in the latter category. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is ripe for becoming like this is going to be played everywhere at Pride this year, you know? Oh, 100%. There are lots of songs on here that I really want to see drag queens perform. What's your number one song that you want to see on the runway? So I want to see Beautiful People. You know, it starts out chanting and and it has a narrative where her first line is, I wake up in the morning and I ask myself, what am I doing on this And it's like, I mean, same girl. (laughs) Like, what am I freaking doing on this planet? And as quickly as she says that, because she's sort of speaking it in this like rhythmic way, as quickly as she says that, it's almost like she sort of brushes it off and she's like, fuck it. I'm going to go buy a purple leather jacket. We're going to party our (laughs) our sorrows away. And the whole point of that is that beautiful people are everywhere. And I think listening to this album, I cannot divorce it from the specific political context that we're having in the United States and also to mm-hmm. a degree in the UK where, you know, drag queens are being banned in multiple states in this country, mm-hmm. which is bonkers. And also, I would posit a First Amendment violation, but what do I know? I'm just a writer. <laughs> I think you're correct. <laughs> I am correct. I think you're correct. And, and then also, obviously, you know, the, the push in this country to legislate trans people out of existence. Mm-hmm. So this is the type of album that acts as a salve. And I felt this way, and I think I wrote as much about Renaissance as well, where it's like... When everyone's coming for you, the best thing that you could do is go to the freaking club and like dance and sweat and be free with your people. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think Jesse Ware's like stated intent is that like this is a liberation album. Jesse Ware did not throw the first brick at Stonewall, but like I think she found a new audience. I think she found uh, like yeah. her queer yes. audience after What's Your Pleasure? And I think a lot of this album is for that queer audience. Like you can hear, I mean, first of all, all of the cheeky innuendo on this album, uh, the constant like references to like lips and pearls and bottles popping. The little sort of talk down that she does in Shake the Bottle. Yes. Jimmy lies, Jimmy cries, Jimmy's just like other guys. That's right. That's right. Benny wants what Benny gets, broken hearts and cigarettes. That's just sort of like a like a different like genre of it, the where it's not explicit. It's not, you know, this isn't like an R-rated album unless yeah. it actually is. Which kind of brings us to the big single and like one of my favorite songs, Pearls. 
tell me about just like hearing her voice at the end of this song. Cause that to me is like one of my favorite moments on the record. The end there, she's like in her Shaka Khan bag. Like yeah. she is every womaning this shit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Where she, she at the end, she really is like she's floating majestically above the club. And it's mm-hmm. just like it it really does bring it to like 1974, 1976, where the diva ruled. And that's what I like really love about this album because she's not afraid to go there and she has the chops to do it. Do you think this record will find an audience with younger people or or what would you say to sort of a younger person who's listening to this record and is like, this sounds like old people music? Um, first of all, I would say to that person that you are making me want to die. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, I think it it could find a younger audience. Like, if mm-hmm. people are out here, like, bumping Dua Lipa, like, this is just a step away from Dua Lipa and Beyonce. I would argue it's a step above Dua Lipa, maybe a, and, and maybe a sidestep to Beyonce. Yeah. Julian, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a this has been a blast. You're the you're the disco diva of podcasting. I I, I don't care what everyone else says. That's true. <laughs> uh, small compliments. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. You can read Julianne's review of Jesse Ware's That Feels Good at pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Gumulia is our music supervisor. I'm Jeremy Larson. Thanks for listening. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.